0: So Josh, I'm, I'm wondering if we can use our platform here and our conversations with each other to help me sort out something that I have weird, conflicted feelings about.
1: Mm, Okay. Have a, have a seat on my couch.
0: (laughs) So you, you know that I, um, largely don't have favorable opinions of most policing organizations in the United Mm -hmm. States. Mm -hmm. And I despise a lot of what happens with criminal activity as it pertains to guns and things like that. but I can't stop consuming true crime.
1: <laughs> okay is this is this moral dilemma about your podcast consumption?
0: Well, podcasts are part of the puzzle, but there's also fictionalized television like Law and Order, which I think is borderline propaganda and then documentaries on Netflix and I've even read a few true crime books. I, I don't know why I can't put it down, but I uh, I feel really weird about this because I'm not sure it's actually a good form of media.
1: Is this just a part of your general aversion to the criminal justice system?
0: Maybe in part, but I also you know have concerns about how I'm so easily able to fall asleep listening to true crime podcasts when grisly murders are being described. I like, think that can't be good for me, right?
1: Oh, <laughs> sounds like we've got some deep-seated stuff to work through on today's episode. Extra, extra, read all about it. Podcast tackles controversies that define your world. Listen to Incubitably now. Extra, extra, read all about it. I don't think... Kelly, that you're the only person that has this true crime addiction. I have a friend that's absolutely obsessed with true crime podcasts, and I know she's obsessed because I try to get her to listen to a much higher quality form of media called Indubitably, and she won't because she's stuck trying to finish her true crime seasons.
0: Is she at least following us at our socials, at Pod on Twitter and Facebook? I
1: don't know, but... If she or anybody listening isn't, they should be.
0: (laughs) Yeah, podcasts are definitely taking off for true crime. They're really easy to access and you can listen to them while you're doing the dishes, et cetera. Um, But there's so much other media too that relates to true crime that it's kind of pervasive. There's almost no type of media out there that does not have true crime involved in some niche or large way in a lot of cases.
1: Yeah, I definitely heard about this first through Serial, but I I guess there's a lot of media that I wouldn't have thought of as true crime that probably does qualify.
0: Yeah, as I mentioned uh, initially, I'm thinking about things like Dateline and Snapped, where they have people presenting, quote unquote, documentary style stories about these types of things. There are podcasts, too. Um, Serial was definitely one of the big predominant leaders in the true crime podcast market, but there are so many more now, especially ones like My Favorite Murder, which are huge, Um, even YouTube channels. It's all over the place.
1: Right. I remember hearing years ago about Serial, which honestly, we might owe a lot of credit for being here and, and doing this because it was the first, I think, popular true crime podcast. But also, I think that it's responsible in large part for bringing podcasting to a more mainstream audience.
0: Mm-hmm. It was the first podcast, I think, where people couldn't wait to listen to the next episode and would talk about it with friends and colleagues.
1: Mm-hmm. Instead of podcasts just being for nerds, <laughs> right? Like to catch up on the news or you know, follow stock market trends. I think that it helped people realize that this is a medium that could be used for entertainment.
0: Did you listen to it? And, and if you did, how did you how did you take it?
1: I did listen to it. I think when we got serious about doing our show here, I remember it being such a transformative podcast, so I thought, okay, it's worth listening to and and kind of learning from how they approach things. And honestly, it was a little bit irritating to me. For those of you that might not be familiar, Serial uh, follows the circumstances around the death of a high school girl Heyman Lee, and the subsequent trial of her ex-boyfriend, Adnan Syed. And I think what bothered me about the podcast was that it was very clearly organized to just jerk listeners back and forth. One episode would very strongly imply that this guy was guilty, and the next episode, oh no, for, for sure he's, he's innocent. And I was just thinking, this is a real guy. That's sitting in prison still to this day, 20 years later, and the millions of people who are listening, myself included, are deciding based on a podcast, oh, he's for sure guilty or, oh, there's no way that that guy did it.
0: One aspect of serial that I think applies to a lot of other true crime is that people confidently approach the subject without necessarily having the complete story. There were at least a couple episodes of serial where they said, we had new information come out since we started producing this, and we're going to include it. And that happens quite a bit with other podcasts as well. It's a pretty easy to generate a podcast with a quick turnaround time. So updates to stories can be incorporated really quickly in a series, but that also means misinformation might have gotten out before any corrections came out.
1: Mm, yeah, just, just a couple of months ago, actually, Prosecutors in Adnan Saeed's trial consented to new DNA testing on the evidence that was used to convict him of
0: the murder. There's been a lot of pressure from the public to have the justice system reanalyze this case as a result of that podcast, which might be considered undue influence or true justice. I don't know.
1: Mm. Yeah, I think it's this sort of thing that, despite the obvious popularity of true crime, There's some pretty major criticisms around it, or potentially benefits from it.
0: We should take those criticisms in turn, and we'll be using them to organize the rest of what this episode will discuss today. First, we'll look at, is true crime exploiting the suffering of others? Secondly, are audiences desensitizing themselves to horrible things? And is this feeding harmful societal trends when it comes to online information? (laughs)
1: probably yes, yes, yes. Mm -hmm. Let's give it a chance. Let's give it a fair trial here. Mm -hmm. So starting with, are we exploiting the suffering of others? And I think this is probably the number one criticism and potentially the root of your existential crisis when it comes to true crime.
0: Yeah, it's definitely a component. One of the things about why true crime might be an attractive type of art, will say, to produce, is that so much of the information used in true crime is available from public domain information. Things like newspapers, things like Wikipedia, there's even a website called Murderpedia.
1: Wait, actually?
0: (laughs) There is actually.
1: Is it like Wikipedia where anybody can edit it?
0: You wouldn't believe it. I actually haven't gone myself, but I'm assuming that it's probably community sourced information and community updated information, much like Wikipedia. But yeah, there's a very low amount of cost to producing true crime materials in a lot of cases. There are some people in true crime who conduct their own research and interviews and actually interface with a lot of the people who might be involved. But generally speaking, there's a good deal of true crime that can be done at very little expense or effort.
1: Very little expense, but pretty huge profits. Uh, Serial, for example, that we were just talking about, was sold to the New York Times for $25 million. And meanwhile, Adnan is still in prison, so that doesn't really help him out much.
0: Right, but the attention that Serial had towards this case could conceivably be some of the stuff fueling the eventual release, if he is deemed to be not guilty, the, the tension that is coming from this particular podcast is unlikely to have been replicated in any other way for Anand Syed in particular.
1: That's true. But e- even if it helps him get attention, Hyman Lee is still murdered. And despite us looking at DNA evidence now, and, and him proclaiming his innocence, if he is guilty, there's a lot of people out there who are rooting for her killer.
0: Conversely, what if he's not guilty and we don't have the truth of the situation and an innocent man is locked up?
1: Oh, my God. <laughs> I think this is why true crime is so addictive. We, we as people just have a need to know what happened, e- even if we'll probably never know for certain.
0: Mm-hmm. On more than one occasion, I've heard of a true crime story or was actively listening to a true crime podcast and had to go to Wikipedia to find out what the what the ending was. It's like reading the last page of the detective novel. I couldn't wait to find out who actually had done it. You didn't go to Murderpedia for it? I haven't gone to Murderpedia. See, I'm trying <laughs> to create boundaries here. I feel conflicted about this whole thing.
1: <laughs> well, but it's those it's those urges, those impulses we have that I think true crime taps into. And Maybe tapping into that could help work towards resolving cold cases, for example.
0: I think a good notable example of this, of perhaps true crime done right, would be Michelle McNamara, who wrote I'll Be Gone in the Dark about the uh, Golden State Killer. And in her research on this subject, she actually helped drive a lot of the progress towards the eventual Capture of the man who had been terrorizing the East Bay in the 80s and 70s. Unfortunately, she passed away before everything had concluded. But her rationale behind this type of work was when we know who the person is, when we have a face and they've been outed, they lose their power. And all of the things that that particular criminal had done were robbing other people of power. And this was justice to have his power taken away, in that sense. And um, in this case, yeah, justice was served.
1: Hmm. So I don't know. It seems like in some examples, people are certainly profiting off of the stories of others, and in others, they're doing they're doing good work to help victims maybe reclaim their lives or at least get some sort of closure. I think that brings up the question: What responsibility does the media have to? not just the victims and survivors, but also audiences?
0: That's a difficult question because when the information that true crime is using is just public domain type of stuff, generally there's no way for them to compensate the people who've been involved and thank them or in other ways demonstrate their appreciation for their stories. So they get this very profitable attention without earning it, I would say, in some cases. And then there are instances in which they really do inadvertently, usually something that might be destructive towards particular communities and as a way to rectify it. For example, my favorite murder will donate $10,000 to a victim's rights fund or $10,000 to an indigenous organization or something like that, which seems like just Really insufficient.
1: Yeah. Just because they can get the information for free doesn't mean that they can't be compensating people for it. It just means they don't have to be compensating people for it. And I think it's telling for these producers of these shows that look up information about real people and produce stories about real people. And then just because they don't have to, they either don't give anything back or, like you said, $10,000 on a show you know serial made 25 million. I'm not sure how much my favorite murder makes, but I'm assuming it's it's significantly more than the $10,000 they're donating.
0: Yeah, they're making about 15 million dollars annually off of advertising. But there's another component of true crime that makes it kind of weird to say that they need to compensate victims and their families. Because in a lot of these cases, true crime is discussing stuff that happened decades or even centuries ago. So, at what point are they supposed to be compensating people? And at what point would that be kind of an irrelevant question to answer?
1: Well, that's interesting, though. Do you think that if they're covering crimes that have happened recently, where that trauma or victimization is still fresh um, with either the direct victim themselves or family members or the criminal? is recently convicted, do you think there's a difference between that versus covering crimes that have happened potentially decades ago, where it's more of a almost a documentary as opposed to what we conceptualize as a true crime story?
0: There has to exist, and I'm not sure we're qualified to establish it, a bright line between when a story belongs to victims and survivors and when that story belongs to the public. Is it when two generations have passed? I don't know.
1: Obviously, the date would be different in each circumstance, but I guess there has to be a certain point where people are no longer being affected by the event. And at least then, if you make money off of it or you produce a show about it, you're not profiting off of somebody's current misery. Somebody who's currently in jail, for example, or family that's still having to process their feelings around the, the death or the victimization of a loved one.
0: Hang on, I think someone's knocking at my door, like aggressively.
1: Okay,
0: I think it was.
1: Are you going to be the victim of a of a true crime here?
0: No, I think someone's going around to like canvas for political something or other.
1: That's what you think. Yeah. Who we're knows? Gonna, <laughs> we're going to switch indubitably to a true crime podcast. This has all just been a setup <laughs> to the investigation around Kelly's kidnapping.
0: Um, if no further episodes have indubitably come out, please. Uh, well, that makes you a suspect, doesn't
1: it? <laughs> Depends how much I make off of it. <laughs> so uh, making money off of Kelly's impending kidnapping <laughs> is obviously immoral, but I think that there would be a certain point in which a crime has enough time has passed, even if it takes a generation, you know, we're looking at a crime from the sixties or something or a crime from the fifties. I-, I think there's a certain point where it would be fine. To cover these stories and make money off of them, whether or not that's the case for most current true crime, hmm, questionable
0: part of what drives the stories that are selected for true crime to cover might be the preferences of the audience in responding to the tastes of people who consume the media, and then that raises a question of should the audiences be reaching out to these producers and saying, "Please only cover." old cases that don't have any living participants involved, is that a reasonable ask for the audience to put upon those forms of media?
1: Yeah, maybe we're the ones that should have a sense of when is too soon and letting producers know about it and we should be checking back. But I think the problem is we're more attracted to stories that are currently happening, right? We want to be part of it as it unfolds. We don't want to look back and Kelly's able to just go on Wikipedia and find the answer (laughs) before she actually finishes the season, right? People want to have that suspense and and kind of part of us wants to have to wait week after week to get the next update in the story.
0: Mhm. It does seem more pertinent to the lives of the people who are consuming this media to look at cases that are currently happening. It makes it more relevant to our lives because these people are living in our current communities and the assailants could be living in our communities as well. I don't feel afraid of getting burked. You should look that up in Murderpedia later, mm. like they did in what, like the 18th century Scotland. That's not going to happen to me. But other types of crime could happen to me. And maybe that's what drives my attention towards true crime that takes place now. You know, this reminds me
1: of September 11th. And I think that we all knew that at some point there was going to be a movie made about it. And that happened in 2001, and I think it was 2017 when they finally made a movie 9/11. And I think that that had to be a very interesting decision on behalf of producers of all right, at some point somebody's going to capitalize on this story and make money off of it. But we don't want to let somebody else go first, but at the same time <laughs> we don't want to pull the trigger too soon and just be reamed in the court of public opinion for being so obviously capitalist, profit-driven about a decision. So when and how to cover these stories, I think, is a pretty big decision that producers have to make.
0: Something like 9-11, I think, is a more obvious case of when it would be inappropriate to very quickly try to profit off of it. But other cases. True crime does a lot of justification for itself by helping inform people about the evils in our world. 9 11 was a crime that happened against all of us, but is pretty unlikely to happen again. And other crimes that are explored in true crime are things that happen to everyday people on a regular basis.
1: But so maybe maybe 9 11 is the standard that we should be using to decide when something is too soon, because it, it was something where we felt like all of us were victims of it, and so it took them 16 years to come out with a movie because they understood the backlash that could come from that. But when we listen to true crime and we're not the victims, we're perfectly happy to listen to a story that's still unfolding, right? Where somebody could theoretically still be being victimized by that story, right? Maybe, maybe that's an answer to it is we just have to ask ourselves, if we were the victims, would we be ready to have our story told yet or not?
0: That seems like a pretty reasonable standard. It reminds me of how there is a missing episode of My Favorite Murder. They were on tour. They did a lot of live shows pre-COVID, and they were in the United Kingdom, and they usually like to talk about cases that are local when they go on tour. They picked a case. One of them picked a case that was still in process in British uh, the British legal system and hadn't been decided yet. And due to speech restrictions in England that do not exist in the United States, that was considered potentially undue influence on an, an existing trial. And they could no longer publish that media. They got into legal hot water for that.
1: Mm, interesting. As opposed to seemingly here with our example of serial, that podcast is most certainly influencing the outcome of the trial or at least the subsequent challenges and DNA testing, et cetera.
0: So maybe we need a combination of the 9-11 standard, and we need to implement some of the standards from the British legal system here.
1: Yeah. I don't like to take anything from British people.
0: (laughs) You drink tea. Oh, they took that from other people, though.
1: (laughs) Yeah, I was going to say, you're going to have some comments if you try to say the tea is British. (laughs) Potentially another way that we could determine the morality of true crime, is looking at the question, what happens to true crime if there is no more crime, no more real crime? Obviously, we're not going to be in a world without crime. But the question is, if there's an industry that depends on crime and suffering and victimization, if it depends on that to sustain itself, what are the moral implications of that?
0: That starts to bring some clarity to whether or not true crime is a form of media worth paying attention to, because it very starkly explains what fuels true crime initially, and that is crime itself. It can be a question of should people produce stories about it? Should people consume them? But ultimately, neither of those topics can come into play without the crime itself having occurred in the first place.
1: Mm Mm-hmm. I guess at its core, the question is, is profiting off of an immoral act immoral?
0: Are there legal standards for people? They are no longer able to profit off of their own crime after they've been convicted. They can't sell their stories if they've been convicted.
1: Unless the glove doesn't fit and you're O.J. Simpson. And that's how you make your money now.
0: Hey, the book was If I Did It, not I Did It.
1: Mm-hmm. O.J. Simpson being in a category of his own. That collection of laws is referred to as the son of Sam laws. And those do actually prohibit criminals from profiting off of writings or shows about their own crimes. But the courts have frequently struck down these laws on First Amendment grounds. So I think there's a tension here between what would be moral versus what rights were guaranteed as citizens living in the United States.
0: I think we would all agree that it is repugnant if a convicted murderer was able to get a book deal. But if another person writes the same exact book and they weren't the ones who actually committed the crime, does that somehow make it neutral or fine? Yeah, these
1: Son of Sam laws are titled as such after in 1977, serial killer David Berkowitz, who was known as the Son of Sam, sold his exclusive story rights. The New York law was then passed that required criminals profits from any books or movies go to the victim. Uh, The purpose of the law obviously being to prevent those accused or convicted of a crime from profiting off of the commercial exploitation of those crimes by contracting the production of any sort of media afterwards.
0: That seems like it has a couple of effects. One is it takes away the profit motive, as it were, for being a criminal, because a lot of people do commit crimes in order to be made prominent in history in some way. And being able to also get a lucrative book deal could motivate some people. But I think it is a means of trying to limit the exploitation of the people who were victimized by those criminals, that they would be re-victimized by somebody making money off of the Direct harm that they had caused.
1: Right. But I think for these people, if they're thinking the way that you're talking about, which certainly happens, I think they'd be fine telling their story, even if they didn't make money off of it, because at least they would still get the fame, the notoriety. Obviously, they'd like to have the money too. And and it's sort of an interesting dilemma for the victims, I think, of whether or not they would even want to take this blood money, Mm. right, that was made based on their own suffering especially if they knew that the product from whence this money came was also granting notoriety and fame to the person who victimized them. Say somebody committed a crime against you and then wanted to write a book about it, get famous. Would you want to take the proceeds from that even if it was offered to you?
0: I think if I was in that situation, I would prefer the book not be written at all. But as it Mm -hmm. stands right now, somebody is going to tell that story who is not related to the crime or victimized by the criminal, even if the criminal themselves doesn't write the story. So my, I guess, moral dilemma on this level of the topic pertains to, does it suddenly become okay if it's not someone maliciously writing the book or Mm. who has done something terrible to me? And I don't think that it becomes okay because the author is somebody who didn't actually hurt me. Otherwise, so this is starting to clarify my my, my problem here.
1: <laughs> oh man. See, see. Sitting on Josh's psychologist couch, we're we're working through Kelly's issues here. Um, so I guess it's safe to say that as long as crime happens, uh, there are going to be people who are going to look to profit off of it. So that that question of what happens to true crime if there is no more crime, obviously we're never going to live in a world where that happens, but Just as a starting off point, it seems to have led us to this idea that if crime is going to happen, we either have to stop people from talking about it altogether or at the very least limit the time frame in which they're able to talk about it. Uh, Otherwise, almost certainly someone's going to be re-victimized based on its telling.
0: In most cases, yes. If, If the retelling is done with the knowledge and consent of the people involved, I have no problem with it. But I think we find in a lot of cases that that is not what's happening.
1: Mm. So that's talking about true crime, the production, and the victims. What about us? What about the audience members? We think that we're enjoying this stuff when we listen to it. But our second question for the episode are we just desensitizing ourselves to horrible things here?
0: As it pertains to my little moral dilemma here, that for my experience is I have been desensitized somewhat to crime. It no longer is as shocking to me to listen to the details of particular cases. And I was even very frequently falling asleep, listening to murder shows. <laughs> I'd say that at the point I started to refer to murder podcasts as my bedtime stories that I could call myself desensitized.
1: Remind me when we debate again to just let you win.
0: (laughs) Just because I'm desensitized to crime to some degree does not mean I'm likely to become a criminal. I want to make that pretty clear.
1: Fine. I'll just keep winning then.
0: Oh, wait,
1: wait, (laughs) (laughs) set you up for that one. (laughs) I think the other, the other effect of this though, is that it's very hard once you become desensitized. It's hard to sympathize with victims in reality, right? real people that you might come across that have been victimized by crimes when you're so inundated with these extreme stories of all the things that can happen out there.
0: Exactly. And a big part of true crime is that it centers the offender in a lot of the stories rather than the victims and survivors in many cases. So the sympathy For the people who are affected by crime is not really built up in the media itself.
1: Do you think that the centering around the criminal as opposed to the victim is sort of an indictment of true crime? Meaning the reason that they center around the criminal is because the criminal wants the story told, right? Say they've been caught, they're in jail, they want a chance to try to prove their innocence or get out of their circumstance. So they have a vested interest in the story being told. Whereas the victim, doesn't want to have to retell or relive the story right and if, if true crime was truly producing some good for the victims of these circumstances it would be more centered around them
0: an argument for why it is offender focused rather than victim focused is that it becomes a way to help solve the puzzle of why it happened in the first place by understanding the motivations and seeing what could we do to prevent These sorts of things from happening. In a lot of these cases, the people who commit the crimes experienced horrible childhood trauma. That does not mean that it's a justification. There are plenty of people who experience trauma who don't grow up to become serial killers. But when the victims aren't centered on, I think it also reinforces the idea that it could happen to anyone and none of the victims were at fault for what happened. We're trying to find fault with the person who actually made the decision to do this sort of thing.
1: And I think there's some psychological benefits to audiences from that. We, we all have heard the term senseless crimes. And I think that's the kind of crime that scares us the most because there doesn't have to be a reason for it. You could just randomly be killed. If I'm going to get killed, I want there to at least be a reason for it.
0: Like Kelly's vendetta
1: because you keep <laughs>
0: winning at debates.
1: <laughs> Thank you for recognizing that. <laughs> Even providing a sense of justice. If we do get to the end of a a season of a podcast or we do get the end of a story or end of a movie around true crime and it has a concrete finish, that could be very satisfying for us, I think.
0: One of the most prominent podcasts in true crime, My Favorite Murder, had done a lot of live shows and I listened to many, many episodes of it. And one of the things that always struck me as really weird is that every time the host would announce to a crowded theater full of thousands of people that the person had been caught and they had been given the death penalty, that brought on cheers from the audience that somehow justice had been meted out in the form of an execution?
1: Hmm. Can, can we like back up for a second and just look at the title of that show, My Favorite Murder? Like, do we not see anything wrong with that title? Yeah. I like all murders at least a little bit, but this one is my favorite.
0: There are many things that are kind of indelicate with the language of that particular show, but their early episodes were literally introducing each story. They were telling us, my favorite murder is this one when this thing happened. And Mm. I, I think that leads to the idea that this does desensitize people. I think that people do enjoy true crime in a way that might be considered inappropriate. And mm. liking these stories to the point where perhaps they like the crime itself is not that far of a leap.
1: Yeah, this murder was a little bit boring. I'm not a fan of it. But this murder, this one was my favorite.
0: Do you have a favorite murder off the top of your head?
1: Yeah, the one that doesn't happen to me.
0: I think that's the right answer, <laughs> right?
1: <laughs> so this, this seems pretty jaded. But I, the people that put out these shows do have some defenses for the value that they provide. And I think one of them would be just a general increased knowledge or awareness around personal safety.
0: A big audience for true crime is women who do experience a lot of crime that they shouldn't. No one should experience any crime, but they're of a particular class of victims in a lot of cases. And there are lessons to be learned from a lot of the true crime about how to look out for abnormal things that could potentially hurt you, whether it's behaviors in other people or situations that are unsafe.
1: Right. I think as much as somebody listening to true crime now might be thinking, oh my God, this is happening everywhere, which might be a bit of an overreaction. There's certainly people who are walking around right now who might not be being as careful as potentially they should be, or not recognizing that even if it's not happening everywhere, it is happening in some places. And knowing when you are potentially in one of those places or not is certainly valuable information or just, just awareness in general is an important thing.
0: Despite the fact that people are probably learning some lessons about personal safety, and there may even be a prevention of crime as a result of that, because people are not parking in uh, unsafe areas or things like that. The actual research on what people know about crime does not show that true crime is really educating the public very much. They will know a lot about particular crimes that are featured as the stories, but when it comes to overall crime trends and statistics and things like that, there's no real positive benefit coming out of the the entire industry.
1: But I don't think you need to know about Statistics of crime and exactly how how often they're happening to get some value of knowing this is a way in which crime is committed or this is a place, whether it's a parking lot, or if you're going hiking, here's certain protections and, and just preventions that you should put in place. Um, I think that there's a value to that, even if you're not able to say there were, you know, 137 people last year that were, you know, robbed in this particular manner.
0: You heard it here first. Josh hates statistics.
1: Mm -hmm. If I liked statistics, I wouldn't be doing a debate podcast. I'd be Mm -hmm. doing my stock market podcast. Mm
0: -hmm. Perhaps it's not necessary for people to know all of the crime data and statistics off the top of their head, but it is kind of worrisome that potentially true crime outlets are misinforming people or perhaps using... Incomplete or inaccurate data, as we've already talked about, when when bringing these cases to public attention. But isn't that how
1: just most media is now, right? It's myopic and sensationalist at the same time, playing on I think the deepest impulses of our little lizard brain, right? Subtlety and nuance is just boring, and these are the types of harmful societal trends that we're all facing right now. And true crime just feeds into that.
0: And that leads us to the third topic that we're discussing today as it relates to true crime. And that would be the harmful societal trends that we're facing.
1: Right. You, you just mentioned this kind of incomplete information. I think that if these shows are going to cover this type of material, they should have a responsibility to do the appropriate amount of research and make sure that, that the things they're saying are accurate.
0: And a lot of true crime does do extensive research and and do a good job. But because there are so many people who are in the true crime game, there are a lot of outlets that do not do that level of research. And the types of things that they're presenting are really lazily researched, really incompletely researched, and often require a lot of correction after the fact.
1: And this this might be another reason, like what we talked about earlier in terms of a time frame of what crimes they should be like quote allowed to cover. If they're getting lazy or they're putting out misinformation about people who are currently involved in a scenario, that's directly affecting those lives. Right. Whereas if this is something that happened 50, 60 years ago and you get the information wrong, sure, you're definitely not doing your audience a favor, but at least you're not re-victimizing or shifting public opinion about somebody in a harmful manner.
0: In addition to that, true crime is often coasting off of the work of others. As we've already discussed, they're using a lot of public domain sources to fuel a lot of their research for the people who do not conduct their own. And one particular instance of this is why I stopped listening to My Favorite Murder last year. They did an episode where they focused on Oliver Sippel, who, if you've listened to the Radiolab episode talking about how he prevented a presidential assassination in the seventies and then was subsequently outed by Harvey Milk. It was a very compelling story. My favorite murder then cited Radiolab and basically retold the entire story as if they were doing a Radiolab book report.
1: Also, just kind of a side note, if you were going to listen to a different podcast
0: besides indubitably, Radiolab might be my favorite. (laughs) It's, It's pretty great. But that is kind of telling to their entire ethos now is that they have other people doing their research and basically giving them a book report on a murder. And then they read it and then they comment on specific details to each other without really having a comprehensive idea of the actual case anymore because they didn't actually conduct the research themselves. It became lazy, in my opinion. And there's a difference
1: between being lazy if you're a storytelling fictional podcast or TV show. Versus being lazy when there's real people's lives involved.
0: And they have had to issue corrections and they have had to atone for some of the misconceptions that they've let go public by donating $10,000 to victims funds, as if that takes care of the harm that they've caused.
1: Well, I mean, they're only making, would you say, $15
0: million? 10000 seems totally reasonable. Yeah, and the donations might actually be a tax write-off as well.
1: <laughs> Everybody wins.
0: <laughs> Another potential harm that is coming from not just true crime, but the way that we as a society view crime and victimhood is that there are impressions that victim blaming is appropriate in some instances, which can be really detrimental to a lot of people who have experienced crime. I'm going to talk about my favorite murder again.
1: This sounds like it's very rapidly becoming your least favorite murder.
0: Perhaps, but there are several things that come from their uh, rhetoric that have become slogans that people get tattooed on themselves. You you wouldn't believe the amount of passion that people have for these types of sayings that have come from the show. So they end every episode with stay sexy and don't get murdered.
1: Wait, what? So like their final quote at the end of the show? Yes. Stay sexy and don't get murdered.
0: Right. In addition to those sorts of things that are on bumper stickers and tattoos for everybody, a lot of the times that they are telling these stories back and forth, you get the other host asking, well, why didn't they call the police? Why didn't they do this? Why didn't they do that? As if it was the victim's responsibility to interrupt a crime in process. And that is, I think, even more damaging when it pertains to how crime is viewed is it takes the responsibility away from the people who are actually perpetrating the crime. Mm-hmm.
1: And, and that's where I think, you know, we listen to these stories and we don't, we, we think of them as stories and we forget that it's a real person that was affected, right? There's a difference between watching a horror movie and saying, Oh my God, why are those two <laughs> walking into the forest around the creepy cabin in the middle of the night? How are you so dumb? You're for sure going to get murdered. There's a difference between that and then taking that same attitude and applying it to stories about crimes that have actually happened to real people. But I think that's what this genre does, right? Is it sort of confuzzles the, the difference between horror movies and true crime, crimes that have truly happened.
0: Exactly. It. Is so far removed from most people's lived experience when they're listening to, watching, or reading true crime that they lose an aspect of the reality of the people who are involved. They become characters rather than retaining their personhood.
1: And I think there's also another issue of which of those characters or real people, whose stories and what particular types of crimes get covered. And it's typically, White women and white girls that are the protagonist slash victim in a weird way. True crime makes those two things the same, right?
0: Yeah, and that also has a lot of crossover with how the media treats certain cases. A uh, missing. White child is going to garner more media attention than missing and murdered indigenous women and girls. We've seen that historically. That's just how the media works. And true crime is an arm of the media or multiple forms of media that really sets apart the type of people who are considered valuable when only the crimes or mostly the crimes that are focused on focus on specific types of people at the expense of others. Mm -hmm. And I think.
1: An interesting case study here, just last year, there was Gabby Petito. I'm not sure if you're familiar. She was a van lifer on a year-long road trip with her fiancé who went missing in August of 2021. And then a month later, uh, her remains were found in a national park. And her fiancé was the main suspect, and he ended up disappearing also when arrest warrants were issued. And after another search for him this time, he was actually found dead from a self-inflicted gun wound, along with an admission of guilt in his notebook. And this received massive media coverage, but not, not just traditional media, but also social media. And Gabby was a cute white girl with a highly curated van life presence on social media. The quote, perfect victim for people who enjoy this sort of thing.
0: And there are so many other people who experience partner violence who have just as sad a story and they are not being centered in these stories or given any attention in the public eye, which based on what we've already said about how true crime, maybe re-traumatizing victims might be in some ways protecting them, but it also means that we are not fully aware of the extent to which people like trans folks, people of color are being victimized, but we know how many white girls get murdered by their boyfriends. But I also think, well,
1: while at the same time, this case sort of highlights that issue, it might take some of the blame off of the producers of this kind of media and put it on us to be perfectly honest, because this case didn't happen On a podcast. It wasn't covered on a TV show. Um, it was certainly covered in the news, but a huge part of its coverage happened on social media. It happened through Instagram, right? It happened, people picking it up on YouTube. We as a population are the ones that drove the interest in this case. Right. And, And if that's the situation, is it really fair to blame podcasts or movies for picking up on the Obsession that the public has with stories like this and and those particular types of victims,
0: but what shaped the preferences of the population who got involved in this story? Have they been fed so much the story of cute blonde white girl being a victim that that is now what they seek in their media instead of just being fed it by the media itself?
1: Mm. Well, this is a very like chicken and egg. Sort of argument, but I I would tend to think that the media responds to the public desires, right? If the media puts out that very first story and the public doesn't respond to it and doesn't consume it, they don't put it out anymore, right? So I I think that there's something inherent within society. Maybe that's changing, but but there's something inherent inside of society that pushes us towards these stories. And so maybe I guess my point is maybe you know we're to blame as much as these shows are.
0: Regardless of who is actually responsible for the preferences of the public, the mainstream media is going to be profiting off of this case for some time.
1: Yeah. Lifetime, for example, is now producing a movie, The Gabby Petito Story, as part of their, quote, stop violence against women initiative. And the jaded side of me is imagining a conference room with the executives at Lifetime, trying to decide how can we make money off of this story without looking like the bad guys. And their solution is, Oh, we'll just make it part of a stop violence against women initiative.
0: I'm starting to realize just how many conversations are probably happening all over in closed off conference rooms where they cut to the chase and just say, how do we make this murder work for us?
1: We need to make this murder everybody's favorite.
0: That's pretty disgusting if you think about that as uh, how frank they have to be with each other when they're talking about we need to make sure we get as much advertising revenue as possible off of this missing child, for instance.
1: Yeah, and I, I guess this basically brings us back up to the top of the episode where we just create a cycle of profiting off of suffering by tapping into these perverse societal demands, which just seems to exacerbate our need for more and more extreme stories. So I know this stuff is crazy entertaining, but to bring it back to uh, Kelly's existential crisis, can we in good conscience listen to it?
0: So I've spent probably a good 45 minutes on Josh's psychiatrist couch, not a full hour because they never give you a full hour. Ooh, psychiatrist means I can give the drugs too, right? Yep, you are you are a doc bore. And I've had a lot of a lot of thoughts swirling in my head as it pertains to this topic and I'm recognizing that while true crime may provide some comfort and some education for some people in some cases that more often than not it is probably creating harm. And what that means for my behaviors after coming to that conclusion is that I probably need to route out all of my consumption of true crime in every aspect. No more true crime podcasts, documentaries, or watching my beloved Law & Order SVU, which often takes its stories from real events. Perhaps it would be a better use of my time and focus to look into actual ways to support people who've experienced crime rather than listening to their stories being told at their expense.
1: I don't know. I think in general, in principle, I agree with a lot of that, but maybe for me, that's taking it a bit too far. I do think that there are probably ways of producing and consuming this that aren't immoral. Um, You talked about in circumstances where they do get consent from the victims. I think it's fine to tell those stories. We talked about ways in which it might be removed just chronologically. From the event, if it's something that's happened far enough in the past that nobody's currently going through the scenario or or being victimized by a scenario, whether that's somebody wrongfully imprisoned or just the direct victims of a crime, I think that would be fine. And I think you might be able to still do your law and order if they're taking crimes that have happened. Like uh, obviously, this is horrible, but crimes fall into categories, and you know there's going to be thousands of people out there who have been assaulted. And so to take a a story, for example, about assault and fictionalize it and put it into a TV show, that might be triggering to some people, which is obviously not desirable, but that might be a fair balance between getting to tell the stories out there, allowing us to consume and, and know that these things happen and have a bit of a better understanding with these things and balance that out with not directly victimizing specific people by telling their story with their names and details. So definitely there's some issues that have to be addressed with this genre, but I don't think we need to necessarily throw the baby away with the bathwater. Although if we did, there would probably be a a true crime show about it.
0: What would your true crime show be called if you were accused of serially throwing babies away with bathwater?
1: Oh, that's a good one. Throwing the baby out with the bathwater. I think they'd call it Lil Watergate.
0: I look forward to watching that.
1: If any of you need an alternative to your true crime podcasts, Kelly and I are here every week putting out episodes of Indubitably and we always appreciate you stopping by and listening to
0: us. And we'll end this week's episode with a fitting quote from Cesar Cruz. Art should comfort the disturbed and disturb the comfortable. Oh, I like that.